the Westlop Pirates, and welcome to the show. We're here to share our thoughts on Northwestern athletics and college sports with thoughts and analysis from the visceral to the statistical. We run our tailgate with the red pirate flag flying high above as we give no quarter, especially the fourth. I'm Sam Walter. I'm John Lacombe. And I'm Eric Skoskowspel. I, I think we should maybe change our, our tagline, uh, we give no quarter, fourth quarter or overtime, as, as the case may be. As uh, uh, We might give the third quarter. We might, it's, it's true. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, for the first time in FBS history, uh, team won three consecutive overtime games as we went into Nebraska and uh, came out with a W. How's your blood pressure? I think mine's just coming down to about normal again. But uh... Sammy, we talked. You, you, I was re-listening to last week's podcast where we we dove into Michigan State, and uh, you talked about how you you know entering overtime against Michigan State, you had this kind of like serenity about you, just like you just felt good, and yeah. things have been you know just it kind of felt like like things were going to go in the right way, and that. The previous week against Iowa, you did not feel that? Yep. I did not feel that against Nebraska. I still don't know how the hell we won this game. Uh, so, I, on one hand, I don't I don't know how we won, or should I say, we were incredibly lucky to win. But that's not what, like, really had me going. Like, what really had me going is we were just obviously the better team in this game. Uh, and it, I felt that way going into the game. It was obvious halfway through the fourth quarter, I mean the first quarter, that we were way better than them. Um, Clayton kind of didn't show up for this game and basically pulled out just enough in the fourth and overtime to get us in. Well, Um, let let, uh, let me stop you there. Overtime was just handoff, 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 QB sneak. Right, And, and I... I meant it when I texted you guys early in this game. I think this was the offensive line's best performance of the season so far. Uh, Clayton did not get sacked. The off the running game was fantastic. Uh, 232 yards, 5.2 yards to carry. Um, there was a little bit of variety, which I kind of want to get into um, a little bit later. But um, it was Clayton just threw two really bad interceptions at two different times of the game. Um, and was generally inaccurate, I think partly because after he threw that pick six to start the second half, he crawled deep into his own head and <laughs> and barely escaped. Um, but it, it was really, and I hate, again, I hate to drop this on Clayton, but I mean, like, I it was just bad. It was, it was driving me nuts only because if Clayton comes out and pitches a good game in this game, we smoke them. We're just a better team. We were way better in the trenches on both sides of the ball. Um, and I think, again, we had a chance to step on their throat early, get an early 14 nothing lead. It didn't materialize. And then, right, and it just became a Northwestern Classic. But this year, uh, Northwestern Classics seem to be coming up. Uh, we keep flipping that coin and coming up heads. So I guess I shouldn't complain too much. So, I, I mean, let's break this up a little bit. So I, the O-line, I, I thought you know, the running game was much better against Nebraska and kind of to be expected, right? We talked about how in the last two games we schemed around a, a very dominant linebacking core for Iowa and Michigan State, one player in particular for both teams, and we did not run much with Justin Jackson. We used the short passing game and a lot of a lot of running back routes to uh, kind of soften up the defense. And then 
shifted back to the running game more in the second half. Against Nebraska, the game plan was punch these guys in the mouth because they're terrible at defending the run. And our offensive line did really well under that guys. Um, I think that like one of the first big running plays, we, we did kind of our classic two pulling guards and they just annihilated uh, Nebraska at the point of attack. And JJ ripped off like a 12 yard run. Like that was, I think that was the first play of the first drive or maybe the third play, something like that. So I like, that was really, really good in the passing game. I thought the pass pro was better. The last two games, Thorson was, Maybe he was he was certainly holding the ball too long, and I felt like the play calling got away from the short stuff, like that we got away from the drag routes and the crossing routes that had made this team so successful the last two seasons. Now, to your point, John, there were no sacks. Uh, a lot of Thorson's issues, you know, you mentioned the one in the second half, that pick six. He also had the one in the uh, in the at the end of the first quarter, right after we we right after maybe the worst interception I've ever seen a quarterback throw from Tanner Lee um, pretty much through straight at and into the arms of Kyle Cairo. <laughs> um, but I, it just, it felt like we never figured out a way to get Trevor back in rhythm after that Clay, first Clay. pick. Clayton, Sorry, Clayton. Clayton. Yeah. Trevor's got his um, own problems. Yeah, <laughs> Trevor does have his own problems. Um, it feels like we never got Clayton back in back in rhythm. We never went back to those short passes. We never got him loosened up, and he just got tighter and tighter and tighter. And as a result, even our running game, our run blocking, started to to wither as well because Nebraska was able to kind of um, shift gears and 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 attack us. I, I another element to it to me, this game felt like almost a polar opposite from Michigan State. If you remember Michigan State, like they came out, they just blitzed us in that first in that first quarter. They completely outmatched, outmatched us phys- physically, and then it took you know the second quarter and third quarter of Northwestern really uh, digging deep to come back and match them. I thought this was the opposite, where we just nailed Nebraska out the gate, and then they turned around and kind of stymied us until uh, until well into the second half and close to the fourth quarter. Well, and I think a big part of that is you know you look at. You know, we didn't convert a third down conversion until what early in the fourth quarter. We were one of eleven uh, for the game on third down. You know, we never really got the rhythm together to you know convert those third downs, extend drives, and you know those are things that you know, you need to be able to do, um, especially against a team like Nebraska, who's you know a little bit substandard. I mean, we outgained them 475 to 337. Um, you know, I, this game was uh, not close. <laughs> well, I, I think by, de- well, I would say it was by overtime. Definition, no, by definition, no, I it was close. I, again, I say this because I was like, I was pulling my hair out from the get-go in this because I just, I mean, like, so for example, right, Nebraska's got the, Nebraska's got athletes. Devin Azigbo is an impressive SOB. And that guy just Devin had no. How, how about J.D. Spielman, Stanley Morgan, and, and oh, Pearson L. Yeah. Like their receiver yeah. core. And, wow. and they were and they were trying to get a lot of quick stuff going, and uh, and they had some success with it around the edge. They've got speed, and Ozigbo's a great athlete, but they're just so soft. And I think we've been in that position before. And just to uh, just to see, I mean, Ozigbo. He earned his 80 yards, and that's a that was a Justin Jackson special that Zigbo turned in. It's just him; I mean, he's a shifty dude. But they, I mean, there were just no holes, and the, our defensive line. And again, everyone 
should know, in terms of yards per game given up, we have the number 12 run defense in the country right now. And that's not because – and, I mean, it's perfectly related to the fact that teams can throw on us. But teams are trying to run on us, and they're failing. And between Lancaster and Gaziano and Samdu, I mean, it's just – and Jordan Thompson. It's a great run-blocking defensive line. Um, and, right, I mean, they were – but, I mean, they've got speed, and they've got some ponies. And Lee – is clearly a guy with tools. He doesn't have it between the ears, but I mean that's a guy who can make a lot of throws and on the run. I mean his long touchdown pass um, in the first quarter that was rolling right and he put it right on the money. Um, but I mean I, with all that said, I just again I think you know Sam brought up the third downs right. What were we one of eleven? Yeah. A lot of those were not third and long situations because the run game was clicking. And, you know, I, it, a lot of it was just location, decisions, things like that. And like, like Scott said, maybe some of the wrong plays, wrong routes. Well, and a lot of it was it was not a lot of it was not short passes. These were intermediate passes uh, on on to your point, like third and short, third and medium. And it felt to me like like you'd get these these kind of like me, like intermediate out routes, uh, the type of route that Austin Carr was just so good at two years ago. And Thorson was throwing the ball five yards in front of the receiver, like the receiver couldn't get to it. And I, I, I just, I don't, I think after that, that pick six, he wasn't comfortable getting anywhere close to uh, a covered receiver and was just kind of thrown out there, hoping that maybe the guy would get there. And it just, it just felt like a mismatch. We, you know, we didn't see, there was a set that we ran a ton against Iowa. Um, and the announcers kept referring to it, to it as like mesh routes where basically we had, we'd be in four wide, and true four wide, not with not with Dickerson lined up next to the next to the O line, but four wide. But they were very they're very close to the offensive line in this situation. The guys basically run crossing routes on, on routes on each side, and sometimes the receiver will run a button hook, and sometimes they run a slant, and sometimes they run a stick route, and sometimes they're running an out out. It just there's a lot of options, but it also gives you on each side of the field essentially a rub route, and and. I'm not sophisticated to know if, if Nebraska's defense was actively preventing us from targeting the, the interior receivers on those plays um, or what they did to combat that. But it felt like every pass we were making was out to the sidelines. And I've talked, I've harped on this in years past. Northwestern's offense is infinitely more effective when it can attack the middle of the field. And we just weren't doing it. And, and that's the, that was a major difference in this game versus the past two uh, against Michigan state and Iowa. And then, you know, John, the, the point about Clayton being in his own head was spot on. Like he just he, he was throwing too far in front of receivers. He was holding the ball, waiting for that perfect pass. I mean, when we've seen him struggle this season, that has been the problem uh, when he when he tries to to, to wait and, and make that hero throw. Um, you could argue that that's part of Tanner Lee's problem. He tries to put the ball into like postage stamp size windows. Um Clayton's not not quite doing that. But, I wonder if they uh, teach that at the Manning Passing Academy. I think <laughs> I, I think there must be a stamp collection class uh, at the Manning Passing Camp. But um, regardless, I just like the fact that that we got out of whatever funk we were in, and Clayton was able to drive down and, and get us that game that game tying touchdown um, was huge. But I. I mean, I think we all agree, right? It was it was the play leading up to that drive that was the game changer here. I mean, this this game was we were we were toast until so, yeah. I mean, they're driving with a seven point lead, um, you know, easily in field goal range, possibly you know in a position to to go up two touchdowns, which probably six a fork in us. And uh, wow, what a defense! I mean, 
Gastown uh, on the delayed rush. I just like the point. obliterates Lee, and I. I was so I, happy I, he I, hit Lee. I was so happy he hit him. I don't know I, where I, Godwin was supposed to be covering, but he was just sort of in this weird no man's land that this ball just kind of fluttered right into his arms. Just I'd like I'd like to point out that the two biggest plays in our last two games. Gaztown was absolutely essential to both of those plays and does not get credited with it, with a sack for either of them. <laughs> yeah. But, but uh, you know, it's funny. It's what Scuzz was just talking about with Lee versus Thorson, I think is a perfect, um, it, it was encapsulated in that play. Um, and, and, and I, and I want to talk about this a little bit later too, but, um, so Fitz's post-game press conference, there's a pretty standard refrain for the past couple of weeks, which is that Fitz is going to go out of his way to heap accolades on Mick McCall and, or Adam Cushing because they're his guys. And he knows that those guys have been under attack. Um, but in his kind of zeal to do that in the post-game, he was very illuminating in ways that I don't know that he necessarily even intended on. And one way was talking about McCall, and he's like, well, you know, Mick McCall, after Trevor threw that, I mean, after there, I'm doing it now too, uh, after Clayton threw that interception, uh, returned for the touchdown to start the first half, Mick McCall specifically came to me and was in my ear like, we got to keep throw, we, we got to let him throw, we got to get his confidence or whatever. But if you kind of peel back the layers on that, it's speaking to, you know, this is a guy who they know they have to manage. And Clayton is not an irrational confidence guy. He was a guy who was as confident as he can be coming into this game. And that led to him making a couple uncharacteristic decisions. But they kind of saw, uh oh, here it comes. And on the flip side, that Tanner Lee, I mean, that play sums up Tanner Lee in a nutshell. All of a sudden, in a situation that's happening faster than he can process, a 6'4", 300-pound defensive lineman is barreling into his face, and Lee's instinct is, I'm getting the ball out. And <laughs> and that's him in a nutshell. He's like, well, I guess I better throw it because I'm about to get hit. Trevor, I'm, I, you, Scuzz, I blame you for this. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Clayton, Clayton just takes the sack on that all day. There's no way he just throws a ball out there if he's about to get blown up. He's Trevor just not... also just takes the sack on yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Right, yeah right, exactly. Uh, I think Trevor actually learned that from Manning. Right, and that's the thing. And, and I think – and but Lee's not wired that way. And that's the, been the book on him forever. It's like, well, the guy can make all the throws, but the decision-making's not there. And he just was like, I got a receiver out there. I'm getting rid of it. And it just blew up in his face, and I'm so happy it did. Great play by Godwin, better play by Gaziano. I mean, he, like the thing, the thing about Tanner Lee, like it goes, it goes well beyond that because it's not just his, I mean, that, I didn't, I don't think there were many other plays in the game where he just chucked it up for grabs like that. Um, we'll, we'll come back to that moment in a, in, in a minute. Cause that's, that's probably my biggest quibble with this game. Um, I didn't like that, you know, the short passing stuff we were talking about a minute ago, but the, uh, the lack of pressure was, was frustrating, but the other thing that Tanner will do is, you know, these postage stamp size windows, there were a couple plays, and this is what I was talking about having watched him against Purdue the week before, where where he threw it between, like, three Northwestern defenders that were in the area and, like, had the potential to, to bat the ball down and route to the receiver, and it would just, like, narrowly get through. The guy's got a cannon, but then 
he, he the bigger problem is that he 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 misreads the defense, um, and that's certainly what Clayton did uh, on that one. Really, uh, he had one overthrow pick and then one pick where he just didn't account for the linebacker underneath. Tanner completely forgot where Kyle Cairo was, um, and then uh, you know the, the bad Godwin pick, and then the, the, a second pick by Cairo, which um, was the uh, was the the almost pick six. Or maybe I'm maybe I have those mixed up. Maybe it was the pick six where it was the one where he just he basically just threw it straight at K. <laughs> um, um, on the sideline, but I, he just he you can sometimes you can see it in his eyes. Like they would they'd zoom in on Lee, you know, coming up to the line, and he'd kind of give like a cursory look at the at the defense and focus in on on the snap. And it's it it's like he's decided before the ball gets snapped, who he's going to throw it to and isn't even bothering to read the coverage. So the problem I have though, is that we did not get pressure all game. It wasn't until, I mean, that we came close a couple times, right? And they were cognizant to get the ball out, you know, somewhat fast, but we talked about going into this game that our D line should have a field day with these tackles. Maybe we prioritized, you know, shutting down the run and we figured like, Hey, Tanner Lee beat us if you can. Um, Maybe, you know, maybe we figured that, a three-man front and dropping eight was the only way that that we could really cover the speed demons that Nebraska has in their in their wide receiver core. I don't I don't know, but um, I was really frustrated that we were getting no pressure, and that 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 just like the third quarter just seemed to be this endless run of our defense not being able to get off the field because they were totally gassed. Uh, and as a result, not bringing pressure and staying back to keep up with the speedsters. And it just, it was like this self-fulfilling prophecy that wouldn't end. Yeah, I don't, I guess I was curious, uh, Mike Hankowitz just isn't a guy who likes to bring overwhelming pressure. I don't think we, we were, rushed, we were only rushing with three though. For some we rushed, we game. rushed with three a lot for some, the most we ever rushed with was five. And it's funny Nebraska did what I feel like in the in the old days uh, uh, Iowa used to do all the time and Wisconsin too, which was just we're just going to go heavy. We've got one guy out there who's faster than your guys, and we're just going to try to get him open. And you are not sacking us because we're going to just do max protect. And that kind of thing can get really annoying if the other guy is like is kind of getting open. Um, and and Lee's got just enough you know roll out to him. He doesn't have a ton, but. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I'm with you. I, to me, it wasn't as bothersome just because the run D was so good. Um, but I, again, it's we, it's a we got not... we got less sacks than Northern Illinois, Illinois, and Purdue got against Nebraska. True, but at the end of the day, Sam Dupe and Gaziano both left their stamp on the game. True, um, true, true. So, I mean, I you know, I'm I'm with you. It's just to me. No real aspect of the defense was that bothersome to me, and really only one aspect, quarterback play, was was the problem on offensive side of the ball. It's just one of those things because I, you know, you want to give Clayton the bear speech from Swingers just because I don't feel like Nebraska, <laughs> Nebraska's not that good of a team, and this is our stretch, right, where it's like, look, you're not going to, like, don't bat the rabbit around for the next three games, you man. You got these claws, Clayton. You got these claws. You got these claws, Clayton. I don't want to see you batting around the bunny for the next three games trying to decide what to do with it. These Because Nebraska's not as good as us, and the next three teams we play sure as heck aren't as good as us. Um, 
I, I, did wanna... I, I do want to uh, bring up one other thing, and not to get everyone's blood pressure rising again, but we got to talk about clock management, uh, especially at the end of the first half. And you know, Fitz came right out and said, "Owned it." Yeah. I mean, he he took that all on himself. How, and how often has he done that in that specific of a way? Right? Like he he's certainly said a lot of times, like, "Oh, this was on the coaching staff. We got to be better. Or we didn't prepare them well enough." But it's all kind of platitudes. This is the first like really specific thing I ever recall him um, mea culpaing on. I messed up. That's that's on me. Yeah, I mean that yep. was that was some Andy Reid type clock management there. You know, we had we had the timeouts, um, we had momentum, and we could have gotten uh, we should have gotten at least closer in for Kubander to you know get a better shot at that field goal. And potentially even get in for a touchdown. You know that would have been that would have been huge as it was because we got the opening kickoff from the second half. So you know you would have been able to have the you know last possession of the first half score first possession of the second half. Obviously that didn't score the way we had hoped it would score as it went the other way uh, for Nebraska. But that that was that was frustrating. Yeah, I mean, it, it cost us three to seven points, and Fitz knew it, and he he owned it. I mean, I hey, good coaches. Uh, another of Northwestern's finest, uh, Joe Girardi, showed us in this postseason, in the baseball postseason. Great coaches aren't above making a bonehead mistake in a particular game, um, and it happens, and it happened to Fitz. I mean, I I mean, it, it was rough, and and he owned it, and you know, I it's I I don't necessarily feel like it's indicative of a trend. I feel like Fitz is going to go; he's going to make sure that never happens again. Um, there was one other thing I I wanted to bring up, and I I guess before we get there, John, there was a timeout. You weren't you weren't particularly happy with how things were rolling at the very end of the game either, were you? No, it, that was a little more defensible, only because I you know it was a situation where I think we had six six seconds left on the clock. I want to say, um, and there was a situation where you know you could have thought about. Do you try to run another play? Like, are you going to try to give Charlie a shot at a long field goal? Because if you can run a quick slant, uh, you know, you've got that timeout. You run a play that takes five seconds and you've got, you know, a shot at a 50 yarder or something like that. That was more defensible. I think I was annoyed at the time because we took the timeout to buy additional time. You know, we basically just burned it like, you know, here, let's talk about this Hail Mary a little bit more. Um, And I was kind of thinking, you know, this this has value. Even if all you're doing is re, you know, trying to get yourself a couple yards shorter, you could easily just sneak it into the line and then call the timeout. Like it, it was a piece that had value, but it didn't bother me as much as the first half. Oh, how much would that hail Mary have just vindicated a couple years ago? <laughs> I know. Oh, yeah, the, Hus- the Huskers so deserved it. So here's a question because we, so in the past two weeks against Iowa, we kneeled on a minute 40, um, granted, in in strong wins with a quarterback who had had almost thrown a pick six on the on the prior possession, and you know chose to go to overtime at home. The following week against Michigan State, we kneeled on 25 seconds to take it to overtime again at home. This game, at 45 seconds, with the ball on our own nine yard line, we didn't we didn't kneel. We ran. Nebraska called a timeout, and maybe that is the difference here, <laughs> um, because then we got a twenty-yard run from JJ on the next on the next play. 
but I, I mean, I was so sure that Northwestern was just going to dive three times to run out the clock and well, I think Nebraska go, had, go to OT. Nebraska had too many timeouts for us to just dive into the line three times. We, like if we did that, we, I think we would have had to punt the ball back. So we actually needed to run offense to get it down into overtime. Um, I, I think you, you, you imply that that has been a strategic approach to this team <laughs> in the past. Sure. Sure. Um, but it might be the mentality. Like you always hear, you know, you go for the win when you're on the road and I, I it might also have something to do with the amount of respect that we have for the defenses that we're, we were playing and, and the way the way that things were going, we'd been moving the ball in Nebraska pretty well in the fourth quarter. Uh, that not was not necessarily the case against Ohio or, against Iowa or Michigan State. Um, you know, so again, I didn't I, I didn't have nearly as many problems with going to with you know running out the last minute thirty against Iowa as I, I think a lot of people did. Um but here, you once, know once I watched the replay on Iowa I was with you on that. Okay. But I, I know at the time you were you were incensed. I was incensed. <laughs> yeah. But I, uh, but I I think in this case, you know you you got the twenty you got the big chunk and then you're you're in a situation like, hey, you know, let's let's see what we can do, because maybe we don't respect the Nebraska defense as much. We know we can move the ball a little bit better. There's no you know, mitigating circumstances with wind or anything like that. Let's give it a shot. See what happens. And maybe and maybe there was a little you know hope for some payback from two years ago. I'm yeah. really glad we did. I, I, again, I can't pick any nits at the end of the game. I was just so pissy from the way the first half ended that I was just like, and here's another timeout. We're not using. So I can't, I, I want to say something really quick. I, I feel like I need to stop and say this because of what I'm about to say, because I'm going to pick another nit in a second. We're, we've got a four game winning streak going right now, and we're going to be favored in our last three games of the season and have a real chance to be nine and three and a not inconceivable chance of having real things to play for in the final week of the season. Um, so, it, I mean, the team overall played really well. Guys like Kyle Cairo, who maybe played the best game of his career, unbelievable. Patty Fisher really trying honest to god trying to get first team all big 10 as a freshman um it, i mean overall justin jackson jeremy larkin and the offensive line showing that there is officially a level of defense that they can function just fine against and we play that level of defense the last three weeks of the season all good things uh, and you know we've been very um uh, kind of pessimistic but i think we have high standards for this team because we know what we've got um, one thing I wanted to mention about the running game, though, because it, it echoes things that we've really talked about in the past, and this is something I wanted to circle back to, and this goes again to the Fitz post-game press conference. And again, this comes out of Fitz's desire to protect the flank of Adam Cushing and Mick McCall. And, I, and this really jumped out to me because I'd specifically noticed it uh, prior to watching the press conference, which is Jeremy Larkin's first run in overtime. The big run, which we got, I think, what, like 15 yards um, and really just got us off to a roaring start in overtime. I went back because I was like, you know, in my in my memory, I was like, well, that was basically just like a sweep. I don't think we even pulled offensive linemen there. So if we didn't pull and he just went left, why did that work so well? And what I found when I went out uh, and looked back at the tape 
is we had either a super back or an offensive lineman, like a heavy. It could have been Trey Clock, um, but but we had someone, or it could have been Garrett Dickerson. We had a super back just off tackle um, to the left side, and all that happened was it was a fake read option concept look where, I mean, I guess in theory Clayton could have kept it if he liked the read option look he was seeing, but Clayton's history of doing that is like one time out of 100. So it was basically going to the left, and I'm sure everybody knew that. But the super back pulled right, and he pulled hard right, right into the field of vision of the middle linebacker, and that's who was getting optioned. And the middle linebacker, so the middle linebacker was being optioned. In theory, if Clayton sees the guy flat-footed or he sees the guy go hard to the left following Larkin's motion, Clayton's got that pulling lineman to help him out. It was basically just a four-wide set, or no, three-wide set, with two slot to the left, I think, or maybe only one slot to the left, but that super back. But what happened was when the super back came in motion on that pull block to the right, it froze the middle linebacker. He didn't know what to do, and he just sat there flat-footed. Clayton could have kept it. He could have given it to Larkin. He could have done either. Um, That guy was just out of the play. And as a result, he was way late. The wide receiver and the tackle held their blocks on the left side, and Larkin was off to the races. And when I watched that, I was like, oh, that was kind of neat. Not like it was any special formation or anything great, but I hadn't seen us do it before. And I was like, that's the kind of crap we're screaming for all the time. Show me something new. And in the press conference after the game, Fitz let one slip in an effort, I think, to heap on Cushing. was like, and you know, Cushing specifically went to Mick McCall this week with a couple other concepts that he wanted us to run, and that's what we (laughs) ran to start overtime. So hit the pause button, folks at home. That's our offensive line coach going to our, what is it, 11 or 12-year offensive coordinator and going, here, run this, right? That's that's what happened. And the again, the play in and of itself, it wasn't anything special. But if you run 20 or 30 of those or you have them in the offense, it's just you can catch the defense flat-footed because they don't know exactly what you're going to run out of a particular concept. And that's why it really worked. But again, and that's where twice Gus is laughing, is like, it was, you're just like, so this is something that only was put in because our offensive line coach came to our offensive coordinator this year. And he's like, hey, here's a relatively basic formation that we probably should be running, but are not. I bet this would work. And then it did. And it's like, great. But maybe let's have 20 or 30 more of those concepts and like, you know, we can really develop a dynamic run game here. So this goes back to what we talked about, I think, after the Penn State game of like we we don't quite know how the how the structure works. If you know who who reports to whom within within the coaching staff um, and we don't quite know where where some of the deficiencies have been, because we've seen stunningly. I might add that all of a sudden the speed option is a play that works this year for Northwestern. Sometimes. And it's not, it's not luck. It's because we actually run it correctly. Now in the past, the quarterback would pitch the ball immediately um, or run or worse, far, far worse, run horizontally along the line of scrimmage and then pitch the ball, basically stringing his own running back out. And this has happened for, a number of years with with multiple quarterbacks like this was a this was an Achilles heel for for Trevor as well um we actually run that play correctly now where 
when Clayton does it, he 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 runs forward. He attacks the line of scrimmage. He forces the end or the linebacker, whomever's being read he, or optioned, he forces them to commit. And we've even seen him take a couple hits on that type of play this year, uh, and it's worked really well. I think the speed of of Larkin helps um, on that on that particular play. I, I might add, but we've also seen a play that has been bread and butter for Northwestern offense for the last five years: the inside zone play become a complete and total cluster where anytime Thorson keeps it, it seems like he's making the wrong decision and he's one-on-one in the backfield with a defender. And that, that's not, that's not good. So I I am not going to allow myself to kick Clayton Thorson's bleeding body while it is already (laughs) off the ground right now. I'm going to hold my tongue. To me, it comes down to a coaching situation of like, like clearly you're not coaching that play correctly. And whether it's, the quarterback's coach, the running back's coach, McCall, the offensive line coach, like we don't quite know where that gap is happening and where the where the deficiency lies. But when I see something or, or hear something like, oh, the offensive line coordinator suggested like, hey, how about we run outside zone with with a hard fake from the tight end instead of inside zone that's stranding our quarterback out there? Um, it just it does. It just kind of makes you wonder about like. If if this if this offensive staff is too complacent or too set in their ways or not innovative innovative enough, um, it, it and just not class, thinking just, about how to fix like basic problems. Classic example of a play that worked exactly the way it should for really obvious reasons, yeah. and then to find out in hindsight that that was not in our playbook until this game. Now, I, John, your point about us being like somewhat overcritical, given that the Cats are on a four-game win streak, and yes, have just won three games in overtime for the first, like the first team in FBS to ever do that. Like, we are, we are perfectionists when it comes to Northwestern <laughs> football, and I think like, so part of my neuroses on this whole on this whole ordeal is that I continue to be petrified by Purdue, and I agree that they are not that great of a team, and that. We should be able to beat them. David Blau might be out now. They've had a uh, lot of definitely is out. Um, he yeah, okay, so he... dislocated ankle with a little break oh, in it. He's done for goodness. the year. Yeah, poor guy. Um, so he is done. So I mean, like, there's there's certainly a lot of things playing in our favor next week. But like a night game, and it's going to be cold, and there might be weather, and it's and it's Purdue, whom you know we should beat, coming off of a third emotional game in a row. Like I'm just terrified of next week, and so I'm. I th- like I think my brain is thinking about all this stuff like oh god we need to fix this and that and the other thing so that we can win next week but it, like before we shift gears to that like th- this team deserves a ton of credit a ton of credit for for what they've done the last three weeks we've been we've been really happy with the play calling to open up the passing game in the last two weeks the secondary was incredible um, the running backs are amazing like. We're in, we talked about last week. We're in great hands after Dickerson graduates with Cam Green. Um, you know, Thorson at in two quarters of this game, Thorson was outstanding and everything we we want him to be. So uh, I think like the pieces are there for us to to, to really finish this season on a high point. Like uh, like they were saying on the Solid Verbal uh, this on their Sunday recap show. You know, this is going to be the quietest nine and this could be the quietest nine and three. Uh, <laughs> In a long time. That all depends on what the Badgers do. And again, I, it's all, this is all conjecture and everything. Wisconsin is a, in some ways, very mediocre team that fields one of just an, an absolutely awesome defense. 
and they have not exactly been setting the world on fire the past couple of weeks. And suddenly, that Iowa game is a lot more interesting this coming weekend <laughs> because Iowa just took Ohio State out behind the bar, not to step on the upcoming stuff, but I, I just – Wisconsin's got them, then they got Michigan. It's It all depends. If Wisconsin decides to not show up against two suddenly, you know, very frisky teams – uh, the last week of the season, we will, you know, there's potential for people to be talking about the Cats. So um, let's let's briefly talk about Purdue, and then we'll talk about the rest of the carnage in the Big Ten. Uh, so, you know, with Blau definitely out, uh, we got Elijah Sindelar, um, who we've seen off and on throughout the year. I mean, it seems like Purdue has kind of been playing footsie with their two quarterbacks, and now they're forced in, into one direction. What does that mean for uh, for Purdue offensively? What should we be looking for? So Blau has been far better. Um, his completion percentage is 12 points higher than Sindelar. He is averaging almost a full yard per play or per attempt more than Sindelar. He's got nine TDs to four picks versus Sindelar's seven to five. So uh, right out the gate, Sindelar is, is much less efficient, much less accurate, um, I think this is, you know, the times that, that Blau has been benched, um, I, you know, I haven't watched Purdue closely, so I don't have a good feel for what has, what has driven that like Sindelar, like neither one of them are, are big runners. Blau has got a hundred yards on the ground and Sindelar has got, got zilch. So you, you don't quite know what's going on there. Um, we talked about in the preseason that, that Jeff Brom recruited Sindelar to Western Kentucky when he was there. Um, Sindelar fits like the, the, the big bodied, um, QB that, that Brom has liked, uh, in his previous stops. Um, he just kind of fits the, the Brom mold a little bit better than Blau. Um, but for whatever reason, like, um, Sindelar hasn't, you know, he hasn't been given the keys, uh, to the job until now that, that, that Blau's totally out. So, uh, it'll be interesting to see how the team responds to this and, and, and what sort of, um, drama it creates but I, I mean again for the for another week the secondary look alive guys you should have some real opportunities here um we you know Sindelar doesn't strike me as particularly mobile so uh again hopefully the defensive line can really can really get after him um what you know honestly what I worry about Purdue more like the, their running game is is pretty strong um they've got three guys averaging over over five yards per carry uh Richie Worship is um six foot and 260 pounds um, they might as well call him richie warship i i just I, I that's a bowling ball type receiver we've not had to face um in many many years so i i don't i don't know what to think here guys i just like Purdue seems like a wounded animal that um could just like you know jump up and bite you and catch us, catch us unawares. I, we, we, we're, we're going to have to bring a, I think we can win with a conservative game plan. I think you'll see the coaching staff go that direction, but we have to execute really, really well to feel good about beating Purdue. I give Brom a lot of credit and this is someone I was not nearly as much in the bag for him as you two were. Um, 
that this team is not they're not nearly as talented a football team as Northwestern is, but they play really well. When they yeah. win when they win they win big, when they lose they lose close. If Purdue had won all of the games they've lost by a possession or less this year, they'd be 8 and 1. Um and that includes Wisconsin, Louisville back when they were good. Um and they only lost to Nebraska by a point. Now on the other hand, you know, they played Rutgers uh, really close, although Rutgers has won three of their last four games now, uh, shockingly. But yeah, I think, you know, Purdue were the best team in the country right now in close games, I guess. But Purdue has a lot of experience in close games, too. It's not the situation we're looking for. I think just once we'd love to jump out ahead of a team. Um, and, you know, I think especially on the ground, I really think we're going to have the ability to do that. Um, and if Thorson can kind of hold up his end, you know, maybe we can get the points early on to get us feeling more comfortable. But everyone at home should be prepared for the opposite. And something that, you know, bears mentioning is they're not giving up a ton of points. Um, you know, they only gave up 10 to Illinois. Yeah, the, the 25 to Nebraska, but 14 to Rutgers. Only gave up 17 to Wisconsin, uh, 17 to Minnesota. And then, you know, you're getting back into... Yeah, Michigan, you know, ran it up on them, but uh, you know, Mizzou, uh, they held the three points. So they're they're a little stingy on the on these uh, scoring defense side. I I think they're a well coached team. I do. I mean, I again, I got to give credit where credit is due. Uh, if you know, we'll see what kind of players Brom can bring in there, but they've got an identity and they do the right thing. And and you know, I think we've all we've seen Sindelar play before. Like you guys said, and I think I, he's a little bit of a different animal than Blau, uh, but it's not like he can't move the ball. I think he can, and I think it's it's going to be us, up to us to to kind of shut him down. And granted, it, granted, it was against Illinois, but Purdue had nine TFLs, including five sacks last week against the Illini. It's hard to get a feel. I I, I because they're our rival and we have to play them. I. I want to hesitate to say things on the air, but sweet Jesus, that's a bad football team. <laughs> One thing that's interesting is that, you know, we thought Brown was going to come in and this team was going to start throwing the ball 50 times a game. And they really haven't. And part of it is that they've, they've run the ball better than I think we anticipated. But I, I think they're also trying to play a little bit of a um, more traditional pace. You know, they, they don't, they're not, they're not going, super fast trying to trying to rip off 90 plays i think he knows he doesn't have the depth on his roster for that and that and that if they try to do that in the big 10 they're not going to hold up so that's an interesting factor that uh you know you look at at those scoring uh margins that you talked about uh guys you know they haven't they haven't given up a ton of points to opposition i think it's in part because they're going to try to slow down the game and that's why this this might be kind of a boring one for for the ages. One that that you know both teams have you know somewhere between eight and and ten possessions, and uh, the scoring opportunities are are really uh, few and far between. So you never know; um, things could could shift differently. But I expect a, a run heavy game, especially if the weather's kind of crappy. yeah. So I'm just, I'm just thinking personally that that's going to be awesome. You know, nice low scoring game. Don't give us any reason to get up out of our seats and move around. Uh, you know, keep our butts planted on that ice cold uh, bleacher. Ooh. Bundle, yeah. bundle up, folks! This weekend, just bundle up. It's a night game in November, and it's going to be cold. Oh yeah, it's and there's an outside chance of snow. And I've actually been thinking about that, being like, would I prefer that? I almost think I'd prefer that it just dropped the extra four or five degrees down, so that I don't get wet. 
because this is not the kind of weather you want oh, to be wet. Oh no, in. not absolutely not. Um, but yeah, no, but yeah, I think yeah, it's going to be. But I mean, Sammy, you were prepped by the uh, by the Michigan State game, unlike us. So um, hopefully, you can you can kind of carry us through. Uh, let, let, we'll see what we can do. Um, I do want to talk about uh, the rest of the Big Ten from last week, and then uh, looking on into this week. Uh, the team who I'm actually most concerned for uh, going into this weekend is Minnesota. And that's because, uh, as it turns out, you lose to Northwestern in overtime, you go out the next week and you beat the crap out of whoever it is you're playing. <laughs> or, or two weeks, as the case may be, with Iowa. Um, but, yeah, Michigan State. Knocks off Penn State in what was a weird game because of the three-hour weather delay. Uh, that definitely Michigan Michigan State in Michigan the weather, State man. Michigan State in the rain. Yeah, you know it. And Lewerke throwing for four bills a game now. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. They they shut down Saquon. I mean that that defense is is good. And you know Felton Davis had another game too. So um, hey, we I want to talk briefly about Felton Davis because my my read on Michigan State for two years now has been that. They have not had a physically imposing receiver that they can that they can throw downfield to um, on the sidelines of the field. And that's that's how they like to attack. Frankly, it's how Ohio State likes to attack, and they haven't had that that either since they won the national championship. But we, we talked about all the guys that have left their program, and that you know a lot of their recruiting has been you know five eleven types that just aren't going to fit that mold. And we mentioned Felton Davis before the season and said, you know, this guy's got the body for it, but, you know, nobody's seen him play, so we just don't know. And, my goodness, he looks legit. Like, like the guy is spectacular. He is um, – he, he, he makes plays in space. He, he wins jump balls. He, you know – avoids tacklers and gets yards after the catch. Like he's, he's the real deal. And I mean, and I, I know we quibbled about his, his touchdown catch. That wasn't a touchdown catch, but the guy has serious ball skills in the air um, and continues to show that. So like, I mean, the, the, I think this Michigan state team is not, is not as great as their record shows, but they're legit. I mean, they're, they're moving back in, towards the Michigan State that we got used to over the last, you know, six or seven years. And they control their own destiny in the East now. Um, what with Ohio State going and just getting uh, curb stomped by Iowa, fifty-five twenty-four. I mean, wow. But yeah, this week uh, looks like it's going to be forty-five and sunny in Columbus. So I I don't know that Michigan State. I mean, they, they, like weather has been a primary factor in the biggest wins that they've had over the last three years. So yeah, and and Ohio State coming off just uh, I mean, an embarrassment on the road. They're gonna want to come out and exact a little bit of revenge. I believe it's the most points Urban Meyer has ever given up, and it's something like like it's in the top ten of points scored against Ohio State in their history. Seriously, wow. Yeah, I would imagine Michigan State's going to catch the the wrong end of that. But on the flip side, Iowa, if Iowa can take that team into Camp Randall, it's going to be, I think, tough sledding against Wisconsin's defense. But um, Iowa can keep making us look good and, and do really big things for us. That's the I, I just think they're a different team on the road. I mean, you, when they play at home, I mean, they play Penn State super tough at home. I, I think it's a, it's a different situation. 
they really pull a lot of energy from that crowd. Well, when it helps their O-line and it helps Stanley, right? Yeah. I just kudos again for running just the sickest fake punt uh, or fake field goal, I guess it was. Uh, anytime the guy who snapped it catches it, that's always an awesome fake. Um, and Iowa set it up so well. Um, that was just a really cool play. And it was actually a pretty big play in the game. Had they failed to convert that, Ohio State would have had the ball only down two possessions. Um, and that really kind of blew the doors wide open. But uh, it was a wild play. But yeah, Iowa, stay hot. And hey, I mean, if Iowa can give Wisconsin the kind of game they gave us on the road, I'll take that. Uh, you know, maybe I maybe it'll break Iowa's way this time. Uh, Josie Jewell versus Jonathan Taylor would be a pretty fun matchup to uh, to watch. Yeah, absolutely. Um, got a feel for Indiana. I mean, they uh, they're the they're the Gopher. Uh, you know, in the wing column on the east side. You know, Wisconsin went in there and you know seemed a little close at first, but you know, sort of. Uh, Slow and steady, Wisconsin pulled away, 45-17. Um, we mentioned Purdue over Illinois, 29-10. Rutgers gets their third Big Ten win, 4-5. Um, and five, Definitely better than we gave them credit for going into the season. Uh, taking down Maryland, 31-24. Uh, Speaking of retribution, they're going to get the, uh, the, the Penn State uh, hammer yeah. swinging back at them this week in you know- State College. You know that in the past four weeks, Rutgers has won three football games and flipped a blue chip quarterback from, I think, Florida, which that to me is is far less realistic than winning three out of four games. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. There's there's the, that smoke that you smell is the tire fire uh, from Gainesville coming all the way up here to Chicago. So that, yeah, that you make program a, you make is a, good a point. mess. You make a good point. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, this weekend, you know, we we mentioned Michigan State at Ohio State. That's kind of the marquee uh, matchup for the weekend. Um, you know, other, other than Iowa, Wisconsin, you got Nebraska, Minnesota, Indiana, Illinois, uh, Rutgers, Penn State. We talked about and Michigan at Maryland. So, you know, of of the Big Ten games, you know, a couple. Uh, well, the Michigan State Ohio State is the only one featuring two top twenty-five teams. Um, whether or not you really think that Michigan State is a top twenty-five team, that that is uh, not for us to decide right here. Uh, looking around the rest of the country, there's some really, really good matchups this weekend. Um, you know, just kind of scrolling through a little bit, you got Friday night Washington Stanford, uh, just a little Pac-12 after dark on a Friday. You've got Oklahoma State at Iowa State. Oklahoma Oklahoma State coming off a bedlam where defense was optional. And then Iowa State dropping their game to West Virginia last weekend. That that should be interesting because, you know, both those teams are still playing for uh, potentially the, the second spot in the Big 12 championship. Well, if Iowa State wins this game, they have a really good chance of finishing first. <laughs> I think it's long odds. Oklahoma State is a monster to have to deal with. But Ohio State, where they win this game, would hold tiebreakers over everyone other than West Virginia. Um, And I kind of feel like TCU's got one more regular season loss in them. So, I don't know. But, yeah, come on, Iowa State. Pull it out. Uh, You've got Georgia and Auburn. That should be a a lot of fun. Ooh, Nelly. That that should be interesting. Um, I mean, it might be a blowout. 
Like Georgia might be that good, but this is to me, this is kind of like the last hurdle on the, uh, the rocket, the sec rocket ship to two teams in the playoff, because I don't like, even if Auburn beats Georgia, I don't think that they have enough to, to compete with Alabama. Um, we'll, we'll see though. I don't know, but, um, crazy stat for you guys. <laughs> Do you know who the last quarterback, the last sec quarterback to beat Alabama by more than uh, a touchdown was? Gosh, I have no idea. Cam Newton. That podcast favorite, Steven Garcia. What? Wow. Wow. Oh, Oh, so good. And uh, this is another fun stat. The last the last coach to beat Alabama by more than uh, by 17 points or more. Nick Saban. Oh, wow. Okay. Now that 17 number is uh, orchestrated, you know to uh to forget the uh what was a four, 14 point loss to Oklahoma in the bowl game so um but still like just st- stunning stats that that put the Alabama program of the and last 15 uh, years into perspective and that team uh, gosh i mean i watched them last saturday night i mean that team passes the eye test so hard <laughs> that team is oh my gosh i i mean you, Georgia and Notre Dame, you could talk me into those two teams playing physical enough to give them a game, but I just don't see it from anybody else yet, unless someone really distinguishes themselves down the stretch. Well, they're gonna they're gonna have well, at least on paper, their hands full with Mississippi State. I don't think that is going to be a, a good matchup, but it is in Starkville, and you know that place can get pretty loud, and all of our fans down in Starkville, uh, see what uh, see what you guys can do. Uh, it's the it's the type of quarterback that can at least make it interesting um, in Nick Fitzgerald, who's who's mobile, although he can't throw super well. So and, we'll, we'll see. And Mississippi State won by a possession against UMass, so I, I think <laughs> yeah, Alabama may present slightly more of a challenge. Sp- speaking of speaking of Notre Dame, Notre Dame Miami, yeah, uh, should be. Pre- I mean, I I thought Miami was. Um, kind of a bit of a paper tiger i know they showed uh, up oh my god they looked good too yeah that, I mean, that, that'll be a lot of fun i mean whew. uh miami miami's got notre dame and clemson prior you know i there's a path to the playoff for them if they were to really to win out i don't see it happening but if they, I mean, if like, yeah, I don't, I don't see them winning out either. But yeah, I think, but yeah, I think if they were, if they were to win out, they'd be in. Oh, for absolutely, sure. absolutely. Um, TCU, Oklahoma, that that should be a lot of fun. TCU, I don't know, I don't know what to make of TCU. Big Twelve elimination game. I just think like Baker Mayfield at home is too good right yeah. now. And you know, yeah, Kenny Hill has definitely looked ordinary in the last couple weeks or so. I mean, sure, My, they, they beat Texas, but. You know, didn't look great against Iowa State. I know Te- I, Texas. Texas is not no. good. <laughs> I yeah, I don't see Oklahoma losing the rest of the way. I think May- Mayfield's not going to let them lose. My dream is that they get all the way to the Big Twelve championship game and then lose to Iowa State again. That's that to me would be the greatest thing I've ever seen. <laughs> uh, but I, I I think I don't know. I I look at Clemson and I. It's going to be really hard for the committee, but I think the committee's going to want to put Baker Mayfield, if Oklahoma wins out, in so bad 
Um, but if they have to decide between them and Clemson, that's going to be a heck of a decision. I I think they would be deciding between Oklahoma. Well, I'm going to save it for my final thought. All right. Uh, any other games jumping out at you guys for this weekend? If we covered the, kind of the big ones on paper, at least. I mean, I'll swing back to the Big Ten briefly, and that's just like I can't really get a read on Minnesota. I can't decide if they're actually bad or just kind of bad or just kind of unlucky or what what the story is. I certainly thought that they would be better this year, um, but they've been really pedestrian and really haven't put up much of a fight against anyone. Um, they're hosting Nebraska, and it'll just be really interesting to see how both those teams play, right? I, I mean, I feel like we got a pretty good shot from Nebraska. Um, obviously, they brought their A game towards the end of their Purdue game two weeks prior. We'll see what happens. If they fall on their on their face against Minnesota, that makes our matchup with the Gophers a lot more interesting. But if Nebraska you know, is able to kind of steam steamroll their way through Minneapolis. Um, that's that, that'll be an interesting takeaway as we, as we think about the last, you know, few weeks of the, of our season. I think, uh, the USC Trojans having quote unquote, righted the ship, feeling a little good about themselves. They're about to walk right into a giant Tatanka trap. Where, where, you don't... where is that game? Where is that? Game? <laughs> oh, it's, oh, it's in Boulder. See? It's in Boulder, but Colorado's <laughs> two and five in the Pac-12. They lost to UCLA, man. Yeah. Lurk, just waiting. I waiting. Oh, I don't. I don't. I mean, it, it could be cold. It could be snowy, and you know that that's potential. I mean, it's out there, but uh, uh, I don't know. It's. I mean, basically, that's if if that doesn't happen, USC's well, mathematically, if they don't. Uh, if if the Tatankas don't stop USC, then USC's into the Pac-12 championship game because they hold all the important tiebreakers. So, um, yeah, I mean, we're recording this on a Monday. Uh, obviously, a lot can change. We we don't have the latest uh, playoff uh, rankings. Those will come out tomorrow night. Um, don't really see any reason the top four would change at all, obviously behind like the the Big Ten kind of played themselves out of the playoff unless Wisconsin just goes balls out and starts looking super impressive as they you know go through the back end of their schedule and into the Big Ten championship game if that's what ends up happening um but yeah I mean right it's still going to be you know Georgia Alabama maybe not maybe they'll flip the order I don't know uh but then Notre Dame and Clemson or Oklahoma? I'm going to say Oklahoma's going to nip in front of them. Uh, that was a really big win for them. And Clemson did not look good. So, I don't know. But again, this is again this is the preview of, I think, the decision that they're going to be wrestling with for a while. But again, that's why I want to see what Scuzz has to say in his final thought. Well, I guess, I guess I'll jump in now. And it's, you know, <laughs> what's funny is it's not even about those five teams. It's about the next team down that... Um, I had some discussions with people on Twitter. I mean, I thought I thought Saturday was a worst case scenario for Wisconsin. Now it's very possible that Ohio State beats you know everybody else on their schedule, ends up in the Big Ten championship game, and Wisconsin has a real shot to uh, to make to make their case to get into the playoff at thirteen and zero. But there's there's a lot of people out there that I think are just assuming that a Wisconsin team that wins the Big Ten at thirteen and zero with wins over 
you know, decent Northwestern, decent Iowa and decent Michigan state is a lock for the playoff. And I just, I think that's crazy. And not, not because of anything particular to Wisconsin. I think what everyone is forgetting is that the committee exists to prevent there from being ironclad rules about who gets in to the, to the college football playoff. And I think there's just, I think there's too many big games left to really, uh, to really play the, play the game of who gets in quite yet. I mean, like, remember, remember the, the, the time that Mississippi state and Mississippi were one and two, uh, and everybody lost their collective minds sure, briefly yeah. for like one week. Um, so, so it's, it, I don't want to, I don't want to go too deep into, into my theories or, or, or whatever, but I just think everybody needs to, to get away from the idea that a 13 and 0 major conference team is a lock for the playoff because the committee specifically exists so that 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 they can make a decision to not pick that team if uh, other factors warrant it. So that's 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 my only my only feeling there. I mean, I think if if things play out, you know, the way that we think we, they might, and those you know those those six teams are the teams in the mix. I, I'm with you, John. I don't see how they can go out outside of Oklahoma with the win over over Ohio state and how they've looked in big 12 play. And just like that, you, you know, that committee is a sucker for, for a QB that's going to win the Heisman. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm with you there. So before we go, uh, we would be remiss if we didn't mention, um, I mean, we've kind of been teasing it the past couple of weeks, but, uh, basketball starts this week. And, you know, I know it's, it's crazy to start thinking about hoops and, I know typically we don't, you know, start talking about hoops uh, on the podcast until uh, after the football regular season is wrapped up. But, you know, with the, uh, you know, cats coming in at 19 in the AP, uh, ranked in the coaches poll, you know, and starting up this week coming off of the NCAA tournament uh, bid last year, uh, we should really, you know, talk a little bit about it. I mean, um, you know, the the biggest biggest changes aren't really all that big. You got to replace uh, Nate Taphorn and Sanjay Lumpkin, uh, two glue guys. Uh, but you're not really re- you don't have to replace a bunch of scoring. Um, you've got a Rapolis Ivanuskis coming off the injury, Aaron Falzone coming back off the injury. Um, you know Isaiah Brown, another year older, he'll he'll get some run. We'll see what we have with Anthony Gaines. Uh, the you know six four freshman from uh, Kingston, New York. Um, yeah, I mean, what do you guys think? Early on, you know, the the schedule is is you know fairly light. I I think it would be uh, generous to say. Um, you know, we're not looking at a uh, a ton of you know big matchups early. Although Creighton uh next week is is nothing to laugh at. No, yeah, I mean that's that that one's lurking. I I feel like we're playing every obscure East Coast Catholic school you could probably possibly come up with. <laughs> we have Loyola of Maryland, St. Peter's, LaSalle, uh Sacred Heart, uh and then, you know, you could throw in uh, you know, onto that plate as far as the Catholic schools, Creighton, Boston College, uh and then we've got uh DePaul down the road too. It's just funny to me, but um, yeah, I mean, I think, like you said, I th- I think probably Ivanuskas is the one, the most interesting one to me, just because uh, I th- kind of thought of Lump- Lumpkin down the stretch as a real Swiss Army knife for us, and I think that's the kind of player that Rapolis is projected to be. 
Um, and that's the kind of production, the kind of glue kind of production that we're going to be needing. But yeah, I think, you know, we return so many key pieces that I think we're all going to be looking to see, are, are we going to step right out and get off to the hot start that people are expecting? Sam, you mentioned we don't have a lot of scoring to replace, but we have the anti-scoring to replace. Um, yeah, the defense. And specific, yeah. yeah, specifically, I'm, I'm pretty, I'm pretty worried about replacing Sanjay. Um, he was, I mean, he was a big glue guy. Uh, obviously, was really well regarded as a leader on the team and in the locker room, et cetera. But that dude was a force on the defensive side of the of the floor, and I'm. I don't. I don't know. Like, like Vic Law certainly has the talent to shut down just about anybody that he plays against, but he doesn't have the size to do it against the guys that um, that Sanjay uh, was was taken out, and and the the two of them combined, along with Derek Pardon, made a really formidable front line defensively. And yeah, Pardon's back. Obviously, Law is is coming back, and you know presumably will be even better given that last year he was coming off of the, the injury season. But when I look at um, Falzone and some of the struggles he had defensively as a freshman, he's got to jump up in a big way uh, to make up for what Lumpkin contributed. And that can be, I mean, that can happen in two different ways, right? Like, like Falzone can, can go off uh, on the offensive side and that will, that will help matters. But um the cats have to be markedly better on the offensive side if they're not gonna if they're not gonna be able to replace that production defensively. Also, being ranked in the top twenty scares the hell Absolutely. out of me. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, but yeah, uh, Friday first game at our home away from home, I guess, uh, at Rosemont, uh, the Allstate Arena. Loyola Maryland comes in seven thirty tip off. Um, no idea what to expect as far as the crowd goes. I mean, I. I don't think anyone is in the college basketball state of mind yet. I mean, college football is just so happening right now, and there's you know so much going on. But you know, we'll at the tailgate on Saturday, we'll be able to talk about a basketball game. Uh, so that that that's just kind of hurting my brain a little bit to to think about. Uh, also, you know, we talked about that um, a little while ago, but the. Uh, the Illinois and the Purdue games uh, in the beginning of December uh, is play, has a nice, interesting, weird twist to it. You know that l- little one week uh, off of the back end of the schedule, popping that up to uh, make way for the Big Ten tournament in New York. Uh, so we'll we'll see Illinois and Purdue pretty early. Um, but yeah, it's it's basketball season. Uh, we'll. You know, talk more about that as as we find out more. I mean, you know, a lot just you know, we'll need to see it on the court before we can really start making judgments on you know where we are because you know that's what we're going to need to do. So with that, let's go ahead and leave it there as we uh, continue our search for the Swoley Grail. <laughs> So just a little bit of bowl projection um, for me, courtesy of the SCOS model. So uh, if things kind of play out the way that um, you would expect them to from a, from a favorites winning games kind of way, I think at the end of the season um, we can probably assume that 
uh, a Big Ten team is not in the playoff. And that's going to result in, I think, three teams most likely going to a group of five games. That'll be Ohio State, Penn State, and Wisconsin. I think it'd be, especially if there's no Big Ten team in the playoff, I think it'd be you'd be pretty hard pressed to um, to leave those three those three teams out of the of the marquee bowls at least. Uh, next pick from uh, on the Big Ten bowl slot, uh, slating will be Michigan, uh, or I'm sorry, will be the Outback Bowl, and I think they'd be they'd be likely to take Michigan. Uh, Holiday Bowl follows, and I think they could, uh, they'd could they probably go with Michigan State. I like to think we would be up next uh, on that docket, which uh, I believe this year is the Music City Bowl. Um, we'd be battling against uh, against Iowa uh, as, as teams with you know close enough records that the Bulls can do pretty much whatever the hell they want, um, which I know we all really, really hate. Well, it's it's Bulls friend. and the Big Ten now. The Big Ten is definitely more involved. Yeah, it's true. Big Ten's involved, so... Um, but I, I like the idea, uh, and I, I'm really hoping that <laughs> the Music City Bowl takes Northwestern because I can actually drive to that game, and it might it might mean uh, that I could I could be bowling this year as well. Here's the stunning part, though. That's it for Big Ten bowl eligible teams. Seven. Um, wow. And Purdue Purdue would have to win a game that, and and maybe you know maybe they beat IU or maybe you know maybe they win one that. Um, that I'm not expecting them to win right now, based on uh, based on favorite status. Uh, no, it has them beating uh, Indiana, so it doesn't look great. But Purdue ends up at five and seven. Nebraska, uh, Rutgers, both four and eight. Um, I guess if IU beat Purdue, you know they could jump into that six and six range. Minnesota finishes the season at five and seven in my projections. So um, not a great year for the bottom half of the conference uh, as things are shaking out. But, you, you know, you never know. We might get um, kind of a, you know, a stunning upset. Toward, you know, maybe Minnesota could knock out Iowa. Uh, like I said, maybe Indiana gets uh, gets a hold of, of Purdue. Um, maybe maybe Rutgers finds two more wins somewhere. But not, not, a, not looking to be a Banner Bowl season in Big Ten country. Be hard for hard for Rutgers to find two more wins with uh, Penn State, Indiana, and Michigan State. Rutgers has three conference wins and a blue chip quarterback. They need to call it right there. <laughs> <laughs> quit, quit while Just you're say, ahead, yep, Rutgers. Thanks, thanks, guys. We'll see you next year. Exactly. Uh, for my final thought, I want to highlight um, really a, an unfitting and, and frankly unfair end to the great run that the Northwestern women's soccer team had in the Big Ten tournament. They made the Big Ten championship game, um, and with you know with a really great run, I think as the two seed, they were playing five seed Penn State, and they lost in frankly just a bizarre set of circumstances. They began playing the game outside and took a one zero lead um, against a Penn State team that I think is is more of an up and down team, and Northwestern's a little bit more of a defensive team. So staking the Cats staking themselves to that one zero lead outside in lousy weather was a big thing uh, and then it started the rain and that kind of helped the situation even more and then there was distant thunder so they stopped the game they stopped it for two hours and then they made the decision to finish it inside in a domed stadium on turf that's right they actually moved a Big Ten championship game from outside to into a domed stadium. If you can imagine that happening for football, I mean, give me a break. Uh, Penn State and Michigan State were willing to wait until, like, the sky opened up 
for them to finally restart that game. But not, not the case in the Big Ten Women's Soccer Championship. And once the game was on turf, in a completely different situation that the girls had not prepped for, Penn State got two goals and won the championship 2-1. to one. So um, our women march on. They are going into the NCAA tournament, which is great for them. But it's hard not to feel like they got a little bit jobbed by a pretty Mickey Mouse set of circumstances in the Big Ten tournament. Yeah, the, the brackets were just announced for the uh, women's soccer tournament. Looks like we're going to be starting off at home against Butler. Uh, possibly going on to uh, face the number two seed UCLA or uh, San Diego State if they pull the upset in round two. So um, tough road ahead for the, the, the soccer team, but congrats to, for making the NCAA tournament. Uh, to continue uh, talking uh, NCAA tournaments, uh, that kind of leads right into my final thought. Uh, congrats to women's field hockey or I guess they're the only field hockey uh, team that Northwestern fields. Uh, but yeah, field hockey made the NCAA tournament as well. Uh, as an at-large bid, they uh, lost in the semifinals of the Big Ten tournament. But uh, yeah, they'll be going in uh, to take on Louisville uh, in round one. Uh, the winner of that game would go on to play the winner of Michigan versus Syracuse. So uh yeah, field hockey getting it done, making the NCAA tournament as well. So, congrats to the ladies of uh, both soccer and uh, field hockey. So, good for them. And with that, we'll go ahead and wrap it up for this week. Head to our website, westlotpirates.com, to leave comments and questions. You can find us on Facebook, find us on Twitter at Pirates. You can call our voicemail line at 847 231 2287. That's 847 231 CATS. And you can always email the show, westlotpirates at gmail.com. Tune in next time as we give our visceral and statistical views on Northwestern athletics. And look for us in the West Lot of Ryan Field flying the red pirate flag because we give no quarter, especially the fourth. For John Lacombe and Eric Skousbar, I'm Sam Walter. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time.